Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. 1035, good morning to you once again. Thanks for being with us. We'll come back to Free For All Friday phone calls in a bit, but now I want to engage in a as deep of a dive as we can because uh, Plandemic 2.0 is, is underway. Masking requirements, new promotion of new RNA shots or altered RNA shots to reflect the threat of the new variant. Um, and the fact that it's coinciding with an election season, I suppose, isn't lost to anyone. We have to try to figure out what exactly is going on and why they are continuing to push uh, the same COVID protocols that were so disastrous for Americans and for individuals uh, for the better part of two and a half years. I want to start our interview and our conversation with our next guest with um, a statement that he made about a year ago. If we can hear it. Regarding the genetic COVID vaccines, the science is settled. They're not working. That is one of my favorite, most direct lines in the entire COVID vaccine debate. And uh, that was made by Dr. Robert W. Malone. He is the co-patent holder of the RNA technology that was eventually used to create what I like to call the poison darts because of the horrific adverse event and effects that they have on those who have taken it. And Dr. Malone joins us now here on AM 1420, The Answer. Dr. Malone, good to have you back on our program. How are you, sir? I'm good, and thanks for pulling that old uh, clip out from the, I think this is the uh, Lincoln Memorial Stop the Mandate rally that was such a a turner. That's exactly what it was from, and I just love the directness with which you uh, approached that entire thing. The You know, and the funny part about that is, Dr. Washington, just to say, uh, the Washington Post labeled me a liar for saying that. Of course, because they have said the exact opposite, that the science is settled. The entire scientific community says that they are safe and effective. You came out there and said the direct opposite. The science is settled, all right. It doesn't work. Uh, and you're still fighting that. You're still fighting, uh, you know, to, to regain the, uh, the exposure you had before you, before you were deplatformed for everything you said in the last couple of years. Um, I don't know that fighting is the word. I, I've... Uh... I've come to uh, kind of relax and recognize that this is just the way of the world. And and about 30, maybe even 40% of people are now woken up. I mean, not woke, but have awakened <laughs> what's been going on. And uh, I'll take that. I think that's a win. Yeah, you know, yeah, I suppose you're right. But, you know, you, what, what I love about what you do, Dr. Malone, um, is that you, you, while you may have relaxed a little bit about this, you're still fighting insofar as yesterday, 6.47 a.m., you got up early and shared the words of Senator Ron Johnson and tweeted, quote, sadly, we passed two milestones on VAERS, over 1 million ad- uh, adverse events, over 21,000 deaths, 
30% of those occurred on day zero, one, or two following vaccination. When will federal agencies start being transparent with Americans? Why do they continue to ignore early treatment? You're putting that out there at 6 o'clock in the morning. You're still fighting. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's this is uh, we've settled into um, a long-term battle now. Uh, and we have to pace ourselves and recognize what it is. At least that's my attitude. And not allow the kind of the daily grind to get to us too much. It's hard not to. Uh, it's really uh, demoralizing, you know, watching America um, slide down into totalitarianism and authoritarianism under the Biden administration. Uh, and and I hope that we reverse it in the next election. But um, meanwhile, back at the ranch, folks like you and me have to just. Stand our ground, be persistent, and uh, in, in, I'm sure as with many of your listeners, don't comply with these illegal mandates. Yeah, well, that's that goes without saying, and uh, do not comply is going to be a, a rallying cry for, for millions of people, I think, this time around. But then again, we still have uh, the people who are holding fast to the safe and effective lie that was put forth by, quite frankly, you know, you mentioned the mandates under Biden. But all of this was started under the Trump administration the last year of his term. He and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and everyone else and the CDC all, you know, trumpeted the safe and effective line. And um, and and let's go to VAERS since I just read that quote that you tweeted from Ron Johnson. And let's let me ask you about VAERS because it would indicate that safe and effective is not accurate. Um, First, for those who don't know, VAERS is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And Dr. Malone, it used to be considered um, you know, acceptable and, and, and a real true look at the efficacy and the safety of vaccines. It's, it's a, a site run by the CDC. And suddenly in the age of COVID, the VAERS system is maligned as being unreliable and, uh, and, and, and filled with misinformation. Why? I think that's pretty clear. Uh, the signals from very early on, uh, including all the way back to when Steve Kirsch and Brett Weinstein and I spoke on the Dark Horse podcast so long ago, and we thought that was a huge audience at over a million. Uh, Kirsch pulled out the Bears reports at the time that showed this huge spike in adverse events and death, uh, and it's only gotten worse since. Uh, and I think that it's been necessary in order to defend the narrative to uh, um, push this uh, belief system, this logic, this uh, storyline that bears is not reliable. Now, the truth is, it's always been known that bears has problems. And the B-Safe program was meant to address some of those, but it's not perfect either. And ironically, the B-Safe system that CDC stood up has also shown these uh, high numbers of adverse events and deaths. And uh, they've recently shut that down with no explanation, basically. But BEARS, you know, BEARS was always intended to be an early warning system. And it was supposed to stimulate a, uh, a, an investigation response on the CDC when you got these types of signals. But instead, their reaction has been uh, to try to... Uh, um, put out the message that the data coming through bears are irrelevant, uh, not reliable, 
etc. They they basically tried to delegitimize their own system uh, because the information that was coming through it was inconvenient. Uh, this is this is classic bureaucratic behavior. You know, when when you're having something, some information come through that you don't like, attack the messenger rather than deal with the information. Dr. Malone, what regarding those numbers that uh, Ron Johnson cited and uh, you you retweeted or, or tweeted the the quote from? Um, how accurate or how how far off do you think they might be? The listing of one hundred, well, excuse me, one million adverse events, twenty one thousand deaths, thirty percent in the first two days after vaccination. So um, that's there's a lot of variability in the estimation of underreporting. There's no question, and it's been long known that bears underreport adverse events and death associated with a vaccine administration or an inoculation. And there's various ways to calculate it. It's kind of technical, but the estimates run from an underreporting of up to 90% so that what you're getting is something in the range of 1% to 10% of the true signal up to uh, about 30% of the true signal. So the underreporting is something like 70%. Uh, so you can, you can run the numbers, but depending on where, where things fall in that range, uh, you know, you can, you can probably uh, multiply those numbers uh, conservatively by, you know, something in the range of 10 uh, to 100 Wow. Um, we are talking with uh, Dr. Robert Malone. If you just turn on the radio, Dr. Malone is the co-patent holder for the RNA technology that led to the mRNA, quote-unquote, vaccines. By the way, what does that say, Dr. Malone, about the efficacy of a vaccine when they literally then change the definition on the CDC website of the word vaccine because it does not provide immunization from infection? Yeah, that's so well, well noted, you know, duly noted, uh, and I'm glad you pulled that out. What we've seen all the way through this uh, COVID crisis over the last three plus years is a variety of different types of redefinition and weaponization of words. And this is all part of the propaganda campaign. It's classic uh, propaganda strategies. Once again, where you have information and truths that are inconvenient, uh, you redefine the language around them. And this makes it very hard for people to uh, really grapple with what is truth, what is reality, uh, um, and, and enables this strategy of weaponization of language in order to manipulate people's perception. This is a, a, a group of technologies uh, that are that have been deployed largely by the intelligence community as well as the Department of Defense, but also CDC and HHS have deployed a, a variety of psychological operations approaches, including this manipulation of language, uh, to things that were designed and developed and capabilities that were developed, uh, starting with the... Uh, um, U.S. government response to ISIS or Daesh, 
Uh, and they built all this infrastructure and capability. Of course, they've been doing a lot of this stuff uh, for decades, uh, referencing Operation Mockingbird. But uh, they, they basically, out of frustration, turned the infrastructure that, that was built under Obama to uh, respond to the threat of ISIS and Daesh, the same organization, different words, uh, and turned it back on American citizens. And in parallel, the same thing was done in the UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance nation. So what, what you're giving us is one very clear example of this strategy of manipulating the meaning of language uh, in order to achieve a propaganda objective. Another great example is the definition of anti-vaxxer was changed. Uh, and in that one, they kind of stubbed their toe pretty bad because they defined anti-vaxxer as anybody, this is in Webster's, mm-hmm. anybody who is uh, not okay with mandates, with vaccine mandates, then you became an anti-vaxxer. But there's a lot of reasons to not like mandates, uh, not the least of which is personal freedom logic. Uh, but when they defined anti-vaxxers in that way, suddenly a plurality, if not a majority of Americans, were suddenly defined as anti-vaxxers. And it took the teeth out of the word, and then they had to come up with some other term that was even worse and so then what they tried to do is link anti-vaxxer to anti-Semitic. There was a coordinated campaign to do that. Um, and it's just another example of the type of propaganda strategies that have been deployed over the last three years by our government. That is um, nothing short of remarkable. Um anti-vaxxer one would think that means you are against every vaccine and any vaccine and i know there are some people who are by the way but but first of all you're not anti-anything you are questioning and you are asking or it would appear to me you are asking for the true uh conversation and the science to be conducted here uh science always yearns to be challenged science can't just be defined as being settled because Uh, enough people say so that's also been disallowed now Uh uh-huh Uh, We have this cult or church of scientism, uh, which for which that is an anathema. The the uh, YouTube censorship uh, terms and conditions now and those of many others, including what the U.S. government has promoted uh, through the Department of Homeland Security and Mayorkas, basically defines misinformation and disinformation as things different from the official line from the U.S. government, CDC, or the World Health Organization. So uh, those organizations, and by the way, the U.N. and the World Economic Forum, have now defined themselves as the arbiters of truth and uh, scientific truth and all truth. And so if you disagree with these official organizations, globalist organizations or U.S. government organizations, you're defined as spreading Mis, dis, or malinformation. It's the whole thing is is a perversion. It's a perversion of truth. It's a perversion of integrity. And uh, somehow we've got to capture our country back and capture, recapture the meaning of truth. Doctor Robert Malone, um, 
I want you to go science on me here a little bit um, as it pertains to, because we, we're not only looking back at the last three and a half years or three years or whatever, we're looking forward now at what they're trying to bring about. You, you've already seen a number of health institutions, hospitals, medical centers uh, starting the, the new masking mandates again. There are some schools that are doing this already on buses and other things. So it's coming back again. So. I want to talk about what we know more, what more we know now about COVID than we did three years ago, and what more do we know about the RNA shots that they are pushing? Now, they're claiming that the new shots are different than the original shots because they've been optimized, for lack of a better word, to deal with the new sub-variant that they are pushing. Is all of this just just window dressing to restart this whole thing, or are there differences in both the virus that we know about now and this proposed uh, vaccination for it? Okay, so the what you 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 loaded we can we can cover the next half an hour with that set of questions, um, uh, but I'll try to be brief. Uh, one of the most important things that we've learned over the last three years that we didn't know at the outset, but we kind of did, was that this is actually not a very lethal virus. Uh, it was kind of propagandized to all of us as if this was a uh, an extinction boundary type of event, that there would be a huge uh, loss of life um, you know, 3.5% was often bandied about and uh, early on. And that was an artifact of some statistical sampling uh, and other statisticians in modeling, other uh, biostatisticians and epidemiologists put the actual uh, case fatality rate for COVID at well below 1%. And by the way, that was also the initial opinion and and, uh, point of view of Mr. Trump. And there's a great video montage circulating right now that juxtaposes Mr. Trump saying that it was well less than 1% mortality and uh, the corporate media ridiculing him uh, as well as uh, well-known comedians uh, that, of course, were all being paid. Uh, by Pfizer and by the government. Uh, so one of the things we big learned over the last three and a half years is that Mr. Trump was right in those early statements and corporate media and the whole propaganda machine was wrong. And they, they basically promoted a fear message, uh, a kind of truly an existential crisis message that mm. a large number of us were all going to die. And we now know in our own experience uh, that's not true, except for, in some cases, the subset of people that are morbidly obese, have diabetes, and are on death's door, um, you know, in general, remember... But they were, they were already included, were they not, in the original uh, um, uh, mortality rate? Weren't they already counting and, and accounting for yeah, those who had comorbidities? I, I tried... I'm trying not to uh, convey the idea that this was nothing. Uh, um, you know, for those people that were at high risk, uh, they did have uh, risk. And, of course, that risk of death or severe hospitalization was made a lot worse by the government suppressing early treatment 
and using these uh, treatment protocols that were basically imported from China involving um, uh, really respiratory mismanagement on ventilators. They blew people's lungs out. And then that was compounded by Tony Fauci's mad rush to approve remdesivir when it was already well known that remdesivir was toxic to the kidneys. And many of these uh, deaths, particularly earlier on, were, were basically hospital-caused deaths or physician-caused deaths. The fancy word is iatrogenic. Uh, because of the mismanagement of patients by overventilation, too high a pressure, and the uh, indiscriminate use of remdesivir. Uh, so, so those are, you know, one of the big, big lies, I think, that's been uncovered is all of the propaganda early on that was used to scare all of us uh, into compliance and submission with the other policies of lockdowns, mask wearing, et cetera, et cetera, because there was this huge uh, supposed threat of death, uh, particularly egregious what they did with the children and masking and shutting down the schools, stopping their education, all those things because the teachers' union was afraid uh, because of all the fear porn that was being pushed. But in fact, uh, children are never at risk. The mortality rate for children from this, uh, you know, across the board is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1%. It's tiny. Um, And there was a big study done trying to identify childhood deaths from COVID. And what they came out with was that all the deaths that they could detect, this is about a year and a half ago, were actually not from COVID, but COVID, uh, they were infected with SARS-CoV-2, but were dying of other existing preconditions. Um, so this has been another one of the big lies all the way through this, is this over-reporting of death, uh, because there was a number of incentives put in place not the least of which is that hospitals got a check uh, for basically every death that they could say we had a PCR signal detected in this person and uh, they died. And if that was the case, particularly if they got put on a respirator before they died, um, the hospital collected a check of about 50,000 bucks. And so no surprise, hospitals were racing to consider anybody that could get a PCR signal, even though that test was so highly flawed for the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, and and passed away or were hospitalized, they, they were really incentivized to report all those, which is one of the reasons sure. why the U.S. has uh, reported one of the highest mortality rates in the world is be- not, not really so much because of all the stupid mismanagement, although that's a component, but because the hospitals were incentivized to grossly over-report this. And again, well, not just not just grossly over-report, Dr. Malone, my apologies for the interruption, but we're up against our break here. But what you just said is so grotesque, I need to underscore it before the break. And that is they're incentivized financially uh, to, you know, report all of these as as uh, PCR, uh, you know, deaths, you know, COVID deaths. And they literally could make that decision by putting them on ventilators and remdesivir and things that were going to kill them. 
Uh, they literally were they were literally able to write their own checks by putting people who uh, you know who did not yep. necessarily need to go on ventilators and respirators and that who suffered terrible deaths as a result of it and then they got paid for it. That's the grotesque yep. part of this. Dr. Malone, we'll take a time out here. We have a news break. We'll come back in a few minutes. We've got so much more to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about the dangers of forced masking for seven to eight hours a day that they're about to start again. I want to ask you about the died suddenly athletes dropping like flies and what more we know three years on from the original COVID uh, as we get set now for what appears to be Plandemic 2.0. Dr. Robert. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Hour number three underway now, seven minutes, oops, eight minutes after 11 o'clock. On this Friday, the first morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord, 2023, about three months ago, there was an international COVID summit, the third such summit. Dr. Robert Malone was there. I would like to, in particular, emphasize one of the key findings that ran all the way through the presentations, which is that, in fact, there are people who are vaccine injured. This is something that has been suppressed by um, all channels of, uh, forgive me, corporate media and governments, that there are these individuals who are, in fact, vaccine damaged, and they have not been allowed to speak. They have uh, had their experience suppressed, they have been uh, demeaned, they have been gaslit, and they are damaged. And uh, they are damaged in large part consequent to the uh, rush of this uh, product without adequate testing. Without adequate testing, typically vaccines need five to eight to ten years of human trials before they can be determined to be completely safe or not. We had nine months. Operation Warp Speed made that happen. Joining us now once again is Dr. Robert Malone to talk more about that. Dr. Malone, you are, I've seen the image that you have shared um, of your patent for the RNA technology, and yet your critics dispute that you are the co-inventor of this tech. Why? Why do they not even want to acknowledge your role in the development of that? Well, that you're referring to that little uh, screenshot of the certificate that Vicel gave me with the $1 payment, yes. which is all I ever got for this. Um, but in fact, that's only one of nine issued patents. Uh, it, 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 it kind of came to a head with the New York Times uh, reporter named Alba, 
that actually interviewed me at my home. Uh, and it's since come out that she appears to be associated in some way with the CIA. You know, this is the New York Times has now become uh, activated uh, in the old Mockingbird sense when, with close ties to the American intelligence community. But uh, when she was interviewing my wife and I for the New York Times hit piece, she refused to even acknowledge, let alone look at the patent that we offered to show her. Uh, I think that what you have here is more evidence of this concerted propaganda campaign. And I'm just one example of many where uh, there has been a, a focused effort to delegitimize and gaslight people that were speaking inconvenient truths. And in my case, the history here uh, was truly inconvenient because it is what gave my words so much legitimacy at the time when very few people were willing to speak out and those that were, were easily uh, positioned as fringe. And uh, if, if the press acknowledged those patents, which they would not, uh, then um, they had a problem because it would clearly make me somebody who knows quite a bit about the text. That was one thread. The other was that at that time, there was a real push in multiple media channels, presumably facilitated by Pfizer BioNTech and uh, UPenn, to uh, obtain the Nobel Prize for Chemistry or Medicine mm -hmm. for Drs. Carrico and Weissman, uh, who were being pushed by the press as the in inventors of this tech this concept and those that had uh, reduced it to practice. And that was all false. That was stolen valor. Uh, and there were multiple interviews in New York Times, CNN, and in particular Stat News out of Boston that promoted this logic. And the press really got behind it uh, and were really pushing, even in, in journals like Nature, scientific journals, pushing uh, for the uh, Nobel Prize Committee to grant the award to Carrico and Weissman. And I, I had friends that had uh, served on the election committee, and they told me that Carrico and Weissman's contributions had already been evaluated and they didn't meet the criteria. In the end, nobody got the Nobel Prize for this invention, but Carrico and Weissman did pull in millions of dollars from the Lasker Award in the United States, and analogous wards in uh, Israel and Spain. Uh, so they're they're doing just fine, uh, you know. And and the propaganda absolutely worked, uh, but it just didn't make it all the way to the big prize. Mm -hmm. Of course, if they had achieved that objective, then it would have really legitimized the technology, which is probably why uh, Pfizer and BioNTech seem to have been behind a lot of this push. You can. Um, uh, was behind it and pushing because it would have resulted in a lot more donations to them and prestige because they were the university where Carrico and Weissman did their work with pseudouridine and they held the patent that has generated a lot of revenue for them that was licensed to BioNTech and to Moderna. Um, Dr. Malone, one more question on this. Your co-patent holder or the co-inventor, if you will, of this tech is Dr. Flegner, right? Philip uh, uh, Felgner, excuse me. His name is actually pronounced 
Feldner. Feldner, yeah. Um, Doctor, F- there was a there was a uh, an interview that was done uh, asking Doctor Feldner why you've taken the stand that you've taken on this. I want you to hear this. Do you have any idea why he's like so soured on the technology? Oh, I I don't uh, I don't uh, have a, much of an explanation for that. It's mysterious to me too. So it had me wondering, do you have any conversation or communication with Dr. Feldner since all of this went down? Have you had occasion to try to come to some meeting of the minds about why you feel the way you do and he is still uh, in in the place he was? Well, Phil um, has long uh, tried to position himself as the lead on all this. Uh, Frankly, he's been a thorn in my side ever since I was 28. Uh, I included him on the original paper out of the salt because he had provided the reagents, and Inder Verma actually didn't want him named on that paper. Uh, Bill has done a great job of promoting himself and uh, talking me down all the way through his career. Uh, and it's important to remember that Bill is a pharmacologist. Uh, he, he did the original catanic lipid work at Syntex under Gordon Ringgold uh, when he was trying to ask questions about the surface charge on cell membranes. And uh, this was all serendipity for him because a, a rotation student that knew about transfection came into his lab at Syntex. He doesn't have a background in medicine or in toxicology. And... Uh, um, you know, I wish him well. Uh, I I really haven't, uh, you know, a lot of what happened in my career had to do with Phil uh, gaslighting and, and uh, doing sneaky stuff behind my back. But uh, that's water to the bridge. In this case, uh, Phil just doesn't have a background in medicine or toxicology and apparently hasn't had an opportunity or, or the inclination to actually investigate uh, what has transpired here in terms of the toxicities. And he absolutely does not have training and a background in clinical research and regulatory affairs, which is, you know, is clinical research norms, regulatory affairs norms, and particularly bioethics, another thing that he's not trained in, that were breached here that caused me to start speaking out, particularly the bioethics of uh forcing these products onto people uh, without adequate informed consent. And whatever Phil may have to say about this, that, or the other thing, um, he apparently uh, doesn't recognize that what took place here is grossly unethical and a major breach of well-established international norms for clinical research. Dr. Malone, we're talking with Dr. Robert Malone, if you just turned it on. Uh, you've missed a lot already. I've got enough questions here for 12 more hours. Unfortunately, we've got like 12 more minutes, so um, I'm going to okay. have to be very selective here. Well, um, we'll have to do it again sometime. We definitely will. In fact, I've got a long-form TV show that we're going to be doing sh- soon that I would love to have you on where we could do maybe two, three hours if you're up for it. But um, oh, that, let, let's, that's let's go here because you mentioned the ventilators. You mentioned remdesivir. What we were told over the last two-plus years uh, of, of about treatment, early treatment or post-COVID treatment, 
uh, about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine was that those were the ones that would kill you. Ivermectin is that horse dewormer, you idiot. What's wrong with you? Why would you take a horse medicine to treat this? We were told that was dangerous. It was not allowed to be prescribed off-label or any label any other way. Meanwhile, remdesivir and ventilators were actually killing people. Now that we're approaching, as I said, Plandemic 2.0, um, is it better understood now that, that these treatments, if, if people do get the new variant or subvariant of COVID, that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are okay? So there's abundance of data about those and many other agents for early treatment, uh, not the least of which is the combination I championed, which was famotidine and celecoxib, uh, a, uh, anti-inflammatory, uh, um, a, and a uh, basically an antihistamine. Uh, I take famotidine for uh, for acid reflux. I take that uh, precisely in in yeah. at higher doses through the same mechanism of action. Um, it can suppress the uh, early um, phase of the toxicity associated with this virus. Um, uh, um, and and uh, that has to do with degranulation of mast cells. I wrote the definitive paper about this very early in the outbreak. But getting back to ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, uh, a legal case uh, um, involving Mary Bowden, among others, as I recall, has forced the FDA into a position where their lawyers have acknowledged that the FDA had no right to uh, put out the propaganda that it did. Uh, it has no right to regulate the uh, um, practice of, of administering off-label drugs, which is the case with uh, um, ivermectin and hydroxy. Uh, the data on hydroxychloroquine being effective against coronaviruses, including SARS-1, uh, as I recall, was published long ago by Ralph Barrick, no one other than Ralph Barrick. So the role of hydroxychloroquine, particularly in the presence of zinc, uh, was in the literature before all of this happened. Um, actually, while we've been talking, I've had Peter Navarro call me twice. Um, and you'll recall he was tasked by Trump to secure enough hydroxychloroquine for the population of the United States. So the, the data on the effectiveness of both of these agents, as well as many other early treatment protocols, have advanced quite nicely over the last three years. And uh, many people, including myself, uh, have found uh, a benefit uh, with these agents, particularly in combination with uh, anti-inflammatories and certain steroids, et cetera. So these early treatment protocols are really quite effective. Uh, and um, the key there is don't let yourself get so sick in the second phase of the disease, the later phase that, that um, often occurs, that you have respiratory compromise and you're forced into the hospital. If you catch it early, um, then it becomes uh, basically a mild uh, contained infection, uh, particularly if you get the right treatment. problem with that is most docs are so propagandized that right. they don't, they're not willing to provide those early treatments. And so you have to find physicians and you might as well find them now that are not caught up in this false narrative that's been promoted. 
Uh, and the FDA has now backed off of their position about ivermectin, uh, as I said, and has acknowledged that physicians have the right to administer. In a number of states, I think Tennessee notably, uh, ivermectin is uh, now marketed basically over-the-counter. Uh, I helped uh, with testimony to promote that. And in the state of Texas, uh, as well as in Florida, but particularly Texas, uh, there there has been a big pushback. I've testified twice there. And uh, the government in the state of Texas has really come down on the pharmacists who would not fill physician prescriptions for these agents. Uh, and the um, Pharmacists Association in the state of Texas has promised that they will never do anything like this again. So there has been a backlash. There absolutely is early treatment. And all of this fear around these new variants uh, doesn't really match up with the clinical data about the risks associated with them. You'll notice that uh, when promoting all this fear, uh, they're very selective in what they talk about. They talk about the infectivity, but they don't talk about whether or not these actually represent a greater health threat, and they don't. Dr. Malone, um, again, I've got to be very selective here, so I, I want to pivot. This will be a hard pivot away from the, the, the drugs to this question, and I don't know if you can answer it in four minutes. If not, we'll we'll do our best here. Tell us what mass formation psychosis is and how it applies to the global, or I guess we could just say our national response to COVID. Uh, so this was a term, and the, the, full, the reason why I used the phrase mass formation psychosis is that was the cited term with some of the very early podcasts from the Dr. Matthias Desmet of Belgium. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, Matthias, whose native language is uh, Dutch and German, uh, actually prefers the term uh, mass formation. It's a technical term that goes back through history to Hannah Arndt, all the way back to Sigmund Freud. And in parallel, other uh, mental health professionals use the term mass psychosis. Uh, and um, even Robert McNamara used that term in relationship to the craziness that swept through the United States under the promoted fear of the Soviets dropping the bomb. Remember when everybody was doing duck and cover drills in grade school and building bomb shelters and all that. Uh, so this term, whether it's mass formation, mass psychosis, or mass formation psychosis, uh, relates to a well-documented, uh, you know, historically well-known phenomena that uh, groups of people under the influence, particularly of of promoted fear, uh, will um, form uh, groups or a mass that will um, uh, come to believe a, we can call it a narrative that's false, and act on that in ways that are uh, bizarre and dysfunctional and often quite violent. Uh, so a number of examples exist about this, and I was criticized for using the very obvious example of what happened to the German people during the 20s, 30s, and 40s under the Nazi regime, in which this type of uh, fear and psychology was actively promoted 
and weaponized to control people. Uh, but what will happen is, is functionally a form of hypnosis where uh, the fraction of the population that are susceptible to hypnosis when subjected to this chronic fear, which basically shuts down your uh, thinking part of your brain, uh, is, is propagated and weaponized. And then uh, they're directed towards a, a leader or a solution or a philosophy that's often promoted as the way to address their common fear, the thing that is driving them crazy. And in the case of Matthias Desmond's hypotheses about mass formation, that in his book um, uh, that focuses on this, it's in, available in English, you can get it on Amazon, uh, he points out that there's a number of preconditions that make it much easier for people to be manipulated in this way and, and form this kind of crazy hypnosis a group hypnosis, and those have to do with things like depersonalization, uh, developing free-floating anxiety, um, becoming disconnected from groups and society in general. A number of conditions, uh, he mentioned bullshit jobs, meaningless work, a number of conditions that absolutely existed before the COVID crisis took off, many of which are are basically driven by a lot of modern technology and the focus on our cell phones and on uh, living in an alternative game-based reality uh, and all of the things that have fragmented us. And consistent with the hypothesis is that Dr. Dr. Malone, let me jump in there. Um, I was looking for the proper time to interrupt you, which was no time, but because this is equally fascinating and uh, terrifying, quite frankly, mass formation psychosis. But I am up against a hard break. I am very reluctant to ask you for a few more minutes of your time after our bottom of the hour break, and I will understand if you don't have it. But could you stick around for another uh, two, three, four, five minutes on the other side? Yeah, sure. I just have a hit at noon. Okay, good. We will we will be done with you at around 11.40 or so if that works for you. I have a couple more quick ones we'll squeeze in here. And Dr. Robert Malone, I thank you so much for that uh, courtesy. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob Frantz on The Answer. Think twice about giving these jabs to your kids. Among other things, your your girls are born with all the eggs they will ever have. And these lipids are going to the ovaries, and they appear to be affecting menstruation in some way. That's just one of the uh, remarks by Dr. Robert Malone on the Joe Rogan podcast about a year ago that got him deplatformed from Twitter and from uh, uh, from YouTube and more. But he is still speaking out uh, in defense of people's personal health liberty. Dr. Malone, I've got two more for you before we go. Um, the first one is going to be about medicine. The second one is going to be about agenda. Um, I have heard, we have seen an extraordinarily uh, large number of young people, particularly who would seem to be in the prime of their lives and have peak health, suffering from myocarditis and other heart ailments. The, and uh, many of us who are uh, very, very opposed to mandating these, uh, these, these poison darts, as I call them, because of that, we say that this is happening because of the shots. But the other side is saying since the shot does not prevent people from getting COVID, which, of course, is why it's not a vaccine, that all there are far more heart ailments that are being caused by COVID than there are by the shots. 
How do we differentiate? Actually, that's not what the data show. Um, and uh, for instance, uh, if we look at all-cause mortality, mm-hmm. which is one of the most uh, comprehensive indicators of, of this uh, sudden death as well as disability uh, phenomena that we're seeing, um, those numbers on all-cause mortality did not rise during 2020 before we had the jab. Uh, they, when we had even more severe variants of SARS-CoV-2 circulating, we didn't see this uh, wave of uh, sudden death, uh, myocarditis, and uh, elevated all-cause mortality during 2020, despite the fact we had lockdowns and everything else. Uh, it didn't happen. It only happened after the start of the deployment of these uh injection products and uh um the furthermore we have we not only have the epidemiologic data to support this and there's data for instance from the netherlands that show a temporal relationship upon revaccination and really from all over the world we're seeing that evidence but we also biologically have a plausible evidence of this association, um, one of the medical facts is that uh, the release of enzymes from the heart that are diagnostic of direct damage to heart muscle uh, is, they are typically elevated uh, in about half of all vaccine recipients within a few days of administration. so you have you have the science data, the hardcore cell biology that, for instance, these products, as well as the spike protein that they encode, have a direct cardiotoxicity. Uh, we have this myocardial damage data. Uh, we have multiple epidemiologic studies that demonstrate a very high association and a high incidence of uh, these. Uh, clinical myocarditis in uh, particularly young males, but also young people in general. Uh, We have these many reports, as you point out, of sudden death in otherwise healthy athletes and, uh, for instance, Navy SEALs, et cetera. Right. Uh, And um, uh, uh, then then we, you know, we're now to the point where Mr. Paul Offit, Dr. Paul Offit, one of the great advocates, for these vaccines uh, that's been involved in all of the various committee hearings at FDA and and CDC, uh, acknowledging publicly that there is a causal link between myocarditis and the administration of these products. He's still not acknowledging the data about the elevated cardiac enzymes, and he's postulating an outdated theory having to do with autoimmune disease. Mm But nevertheless, he is clearly and firmly acknowledging this, as the CDC has uh, from very early on, as well as the FDA. The thing that has been done, this is more of the PSYOPs propaganda, is that claims have been made without evidence that this myocarditis is mild and self-limited. But uh, they didn't have the data to make those statements. 
And what we're now seeing is that the for clinical myocarditis, uh, so this is not, you know, not everybody gets this, not even half of people get this, but for the, those that do develop clinical myocarditis that takes them to the doctor or to the hospital, the five-year mortality from clinical myocarditis, viral myocarditis, is quite high. Uh, it's something in the 10% range. Some people think higher. And unfortunately, this clinical myocarditis associated with these products is tracking at a similar uh, mortality rate to classical viral myocarditis. So it it is worrisome. It is absolutely present. It's absolutely worse in young adults and children. It's absolutely worse in males. Uh, it is absolutely striking athletes and warfighters. And uh, th- this, again, is there's been a concerted effort to deny the truth about this risk. Dr. Malone, uh, we've got less than two minutes left. This is just going to be your brief uh, thumbnail answer to this question. You know, President Trump was responsible for Operation Warp Speed. President Biden made it mandatory for millions and millions of Americans, but that's just the American side. My last question for you is, how much influence does the World Health Organization have on American policy vis-a-vis COVID? Uh, I think that the better way to think about this is how much influence does American uh, infrastructure and the intelligence community have on the World Health Organization? Uh, The other major factor driving WHO is the fact that WHO is very dependent on donations. One of their larger donors is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, hidden is that um, they receive considerable donations, uh, quote-unquote, often associated with a quid pro quo arrangement of both full-time employees and money from pharmaceutical companies. So the WHO uh, is not the independent arbiter of truth and, and integrity in medicine, but rather is a captured agency, much like FDA and CDC have demonstrated. Uh, and, um, uh, I would say more like there's been a close coordination and cooperation between American HHS and the intelligence community with the World Health Organization. Dr. Robert Malone, thank you so very much. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on and even working a little bit of overtime for us here. What you are doing is so extraordinarily important. You and some of the other frontline doctors, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Jensen, and, uh, and, and so many others. Thank you for what you're doing. I look forward to following up with you again sometime very soon. Thank you, sir, and I hope you have a great day. And you as well. Thank you. Dr. Robert W. Malone, he is doing... Listen, I I said this a little bit yesterday and maybe even a little bit this morning before he came on. If you are looking for a tiebreaker in terms of whom you believe, 